0: Hey everybody, welcome back to the Noggin Notes Podcast. I'm Jake Wiskirchen, the host, and I just want to take a moment to reflect on the last uh, three and a half years that we've been doing this. It's pretty mind-bending to think that we've had an almost weekly podcast every week for three and a half years. Um, I certainly never saw this coming, I didn't uh, didn't expect it, and all credit goes to my partner, the founder of Naga Notes, Safisa Rapinga, down in Cambodia, uh, loyally and diligently holding down the fort, but not just simply continuing to make things happen, but also expanding. So for those of you who don't know, we have a Naga Notes Africa and a Naga Notes Cambodia now, and I could not be more humbled to be part of something so great Um for a couple of years now i 've been pretty proud to say that I have an international podcast, and that 's not international simply because it 's on the internet but because we have interviews from people all across the globe and For a guy you know born and raised in a little town of Reno Nevada, uh, the biggest little city by the way it 's not so little, but uh, it is small compared to major metropolis areas like uh, you know new york and l a and uh, you know, many, many others across the world that are much larger than New York and LA. It's uh, it's a little bizarre, but thanks to the advantage of the interwebs, we are able to connect in ways that we never thought possible and things that are just, um, you know, science, pulp fiction of yesteryear are actually manifesting in today's world. And I think that's pretty cool. So if you want to know what's going on in the mental health realm in other parts of the world, check out Naga Notes Africa and Naga Notes Cambodia. Um, Our hosts are incredible. They're, I think they're better than I am at this, which isn't saying much. I'm just (laughs) an amateur trying to figure it out on his own. Um, But I think they do a wonderful job and it's uh, it's just really really special for me to be connected to something like that. So, check out Naga Notes Cambodia, Naga Notes Africa, if you want to if you want to enrich and uh, develop your Noggin the way that uh, we we had originally intended when we set forth doing this thing back in summer of 2017, and really precedes that it was a uh, winter of 2016 that we first started talking about this. So. Um. Thanks, Safiso. Really appreciate you, brother. It uh, means a lot to me to to be along on this journey. Today's podcast is my interview with Colleen Kamenish. She's a colleague. She works in the mindfulness-based stress reduction um, arena, I guess you could call it. And I learned a ton by talking to her we go back all the way to undergrad where we barely knew each other, but, um, now we kind of run in the same circles and she teaches a lot and she consults and she, um, does some really wonderful things. I, I look up to her. I consider her, a, a somebody I would point to if you're interested in getting into anything to do with health and healing as a, relates to the mind and being able to calm yourself and pull yourself in the present moment and uh, really live life without a lot of tumult and interference and, you know, who isn't surrounded by that these days. So Colleen Kamenish is our guest. I really enjoyed the the conversation. I think you will too. It's really interesting and illuminating. Our podcast is sponsored as always by Audible and you can go get a free 30-day trial through audibletrial.com slash notes, Download a free audio book. Keep it even after you cancel if you want to cancel, but you probably won't because Audible is awesome. And if you're already into audio content, as I suspect you are, if you're listening to this, then you'll probably keep your membership and continue uh, downloading books and, and like I said, uh, educating and enriching your noggin. Also by Zephyr Wellness, my company that I co-own here in Northern Nevada with Lindsay Bell, uh, my co-owner and business partner. And uh, if you want to learn more about us, check out ZephyrWellness.org or go download some of our free content that we publish through the YouTube channel and the Instagram feed and the the Twitter and and the Facebook and all those things. Uh, And then last but not least, um, I'm part of an organization called Walk the Talk America. If you want to get a free and anonymous mental health screening, go to WTTA.org. That's Walk the Talk America, WTTA.org slash love. And you can get a free and anonymous mental health screening. Check in on yourself, but don't just do it for yourself. Share it with other people. Let other people know that they can get a free and anonymous mental health screening through WTTA.org. And without further delay, here's my Colleen Kamenish interview. I hope you enjoy it. Today, we are welcoming Colleen Kamenish. Hello, Colleen. How are you?
1: Hi. Thanks for having me on today. I'm doing well.
0: Yeah. uh, My pleasure to have you on. And um, we uh, crossed paths recently. Recently was like two years ago uh, at some conference of something, I think, at the VA maybe. Um, But uh, we actually went to undergrad together many moons ago and and then reconnected professionally, which is kind of cool. And I didn't know what you were doing. And I wanted you on here to explain what it is that you do, because I think mindfulness-based stress reduction is a very, very cool concept, and it can be applied in many different areas. But before I go trampling on your credentials and your uh, profession, maybe you should introduce yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay, yeah, thank you for having me on. So, um, So actually, my professional background, I have an MBA that I got from the um, UNR, which is really cool. And then um, I actually went on and got a postgraduate degree in international business and trade law. And now I do something really different. (laughs) Um, But I I feel like all of those those pieces have sort of supported me in my efforts. Um, And one part of that was I was super stressed out when I started my professional career um, and I was really struggling. And um, I'd spent like a little bit of time in Italy during uh, undergrad. And I remember when I was there, I was, like, feeling so, like, calm and relaxed and at ease. Um, and so then I developed this returning to Italy problem, which, um, yeah, eventually led me to, to trying to move to Italy. And when that didn't work out, I was super stressed in the place that usually took away my stress. And at, at that point in my life, somebody had given me a book called uh, Wherever You Go, There You Are. Mm-hmm. And it was by John Kabat-Zinn, and who also has another book um, called Full Catastrophe Living, which is about mindfulness-based stress reduction. So I, one day I was sitting in my apartment in Italy and I thought, well, like, I, I better read this book because I'm super stressed. And this is the place that usually made me feel better. So I read actually just the testimonials and they were so powerful. I decided to leave Italy and to move to Massachusetts and take this course. And, um, and I was skeptical because, you know, I have a a master's degree in business. I, I tend to really, um, be, I would say creative, but also mostly analytical about decision making. Um, and I thought, boy, this is probably going to be like a bunch of hippies teaching this class and I don't know what I'm signing (laughs) up for. (laughs) Um, and it was life-changing for me. It really helped shift a lot of my perspectives. So uh, that was like 13 years ago. Um, and then after I completed that course, I decided this was a path that I wanted to follow. Um, so they have a teacher training path, which I completed. Um, and then I started teaching here in Reno because there wasn't anything like that here. And then I actually got recruited by the University of Massachusetts Medical School to work at the Center for Mindfulness, where... John kabat had founded the program so that was like a dream scenario for me yeah. so I got to be there for about a year um, and then really missed I really missed impacting a community of people that I actually saw and interacted with and I think that's something special about Reno it's like um, if you do good work here you can really feel the benefits in the community and so that's been really powerful and now I uh, since then, the Center for Mindfulness has reformed at the Brown School of Public Health, and so now I work for them remotely, and I help teach other teachers on the training path. I mentor them um, all over the world, so it's really uh, special. So that's that's sort of my very <laughs> strange and winding road with a career path and, and what I do now.
0: That's good, though, and I'm glad you're saying that because I think, you know— I- Our listening audience uh, is truly international. It's from all over the world. And um, for those of you who may be new to the program, uh, we've been doing this podcast pretty much weekly for about three and a half years. But recently, Safiso, who's the founder of Naga Notes, um, also spun off two new podcasts, one in Africa and one in Cambodia from one of, one of our guests on the show actually is, is hosting the Africa podcast. And so when you're speaking, you are truly speaking to an international audience because we've, we've formed, um, audiences all around the world. And it's very, very special to me. And it's, it's something I hold very preciously. Um, but with regard to the people who listen, I think it's, it's, it's validating to hear you say that you have degrees in different things. And then finally, you found this other career that really fired your your passions up. Because as a person who has had several false start careers myself, um, it's okay. I think that's the message is to say it's okay to see people who are succeeding. They didn't start out that way in their 20s, necessarily. Uh, some Some of us find our way later on through life. And all those experiences are not Wasted. They're they're actually quite useful in whatever it is that we end up doing later. So, thanks for saying that. You also work for the University of Nevada. That's the that's the acronym before is the UNR is University of Nevada uh, Reno. And you work for the School of Medicine up there too. What do you do with them?
1: So I actually used to work for them. I've since transitioned out, but I still work for the the University of Nevada Reno. I actually teach a class in the business school now. but I used to work uh, directly with uh, the UNR. You know, I'm just going to go back to the acronym. UNR, yeah, uh, that's fine. UNR Med. <laughs> we yeah, could say um, we could
0: say that people outside of the UNR culture can have to say Nevada. Yes. But that's only to distinguish us from that other school down south called UNLV. But uh, but oh, go like on, yes. okay. in-state rivalry. <laughs>
1: Um, So most of the time, I actually, I started there with a business job. So I was the institutional coordinator of graduate medical education, which means that um, there's an accreditation body that basically puts rules into place to protect and uh, inform what resident physicians learn throughout their training. So I spent about two years um, in that role. And it was really amazing. It gave me, I mean, so much admiration for what physicians do, what they sacrifice, what they go through, the reasons they go into medicine um, and just the intensity of that. Like this is to me, I feel like the people that go on that path, it's a calling um, because there's, there's so much behind that. Um, And then, uh, so then when I went to UMass to work for them, I actually, when I came back to Reno, went, came back here and they, um, let me come back in more of a capacity of wellness um, since I had done a little bit of that work here. So I had, had t- worked with the med students, teaching them uh, mindfulness-based stress reduction, which we could see had a significant impact. Um, and then I got to do modified versions of that with the resident physicians. And then I actually started teaching um, a curriculum called mindful practice created by two physicians that I met when I was working at the UMass center for mindfulness, who, who were trained like I was to teach mindfulness. But when they went back into the practice of medicine, they thought, Oh, there's, there's so many ways we can apply this to what we do in patient care. Um, And not just in the, the aspect of caring for patients, but for what we experience as clinicians in the room with patients. So, if you look at you know in my my career path, looking at the accreditation and the curriculum for physicians, there's a lot of emphasis around how to how to tell somebody bad news or mm. um, how to address suffering from the patient perspective, but the clinicians themselves are left out. You know that that they're also in the room experiencing, witnessing, and I think with COVID nineteen people are more aware of that than they probably ever were, you know, that these clinicians are, you know, holding the hands of of dying patients while their families can't be there. And so um, this curriculum is really centered around these topic areas and shared stories because they have such a unique experience. So then I transitioned from the school of medicine. I'm now the executive director of the Nevada Physician Wellness Coalition where we've brought the same curriculum in, and instead of just helping one institution, we're really trying to help uh, hospitals across the state so that we can help clinicians across the state.
0: That's super cool, and it's relevant to mental health practitioners as well, and I know we have some of them in our audience, uh, because one of the recurring themes throughout the summer and fall and winter is Um, how do we as the care providers hold a space for people who are struggling when we ourselves are struggling? Because that's typically not the way it works. Typically, the way it works is we're seen as um, (laughs) having it together. uh, We may or may not, but but never have we seen broad-based, you know, across the population type of stress. And so, it's really hard when you're dealing with concepts like countertransference, which is a, a fancy way of saying um, you're struggling with the same thing the other person's struggling with, only you're not supposed to share it because uh, it can contaminates the the exchange. Um, and when we're all struggling with this, how do we keep the how do we stay on task, right, and still provide empathy and compassion and a, and a safe place for people to heal? And I I can only imagine how much more that impacts the medical community because of. The the real raw outcome of death and not being able to do anything about it in a profession where you know Western medicine has long said, hey, save people, right? And, and we're capable of doing that. So I want to get a little granular here and have you explain exactly what mindfulness-based stress reduction is beyond just – it's a pretty self-defining term, I suppose. But maybe talk about what mindfulness is and is not and maybe demystify some of that and uh how it applies to to all uh professions.
1: Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. There's a lot there. It's a um, large
0: one. Yes, feel free to start but, wherever you want.
1: <laughs> yeah, and but I think it's it's a lot of what um people are curious about. So, um one of the terms that sometimes we consider mindfulness as being a part of what's called the contemplative field. So there's lots of different kind of contemplative practices. And, um, and today, if you, if you look at how m- mindfulness seems to be pervasive everywhere, which on the one hand is right. so amazing, it's like so cool that probably no one's sitting in, a, in an apartment like I was thinking like, is this a bunch of hippies? Like, yeah. I think there's this this sense like, no, there's something really here that's valuable. Um, But there's also kind of this Mick mindfulness, you know, this like watered down version of the way that it's um, maybe being promoted to people or explored. So when I think about mindfulness, there's two different things that come to mind. I mean, there's and this might be sort of a semantics issue, but there's this idea of being mindful, being attentive. People have that idea as far as like a word and a concept. And so that's true.
0: Being being uh, present, you mean, like in the moment and not being distracted oh, or mentally I elsewhere?
1: Just the word mindfulness itself. You know, like I'm being mindful. Yeah, I'm being attentive to what I'm doing right here in the present moment. Right. So that's that's one thing. Um, and then there's, you know, meditation, which is a practice that you can do, an experiential practice that helps with facilitate us having more mindfulness. So often when I define mindfulness, I, I think it's most closely related to awareness. Okay. So really having awareness of what's happening in the present moment while it's happening, which sounds simple, but definitely not easy. As yeah, it definitely takes know.
0: practice for sure.
1: Yeah, it takes practice. Um, but I think that's not all. So that's, you know, I, again, I think that's generally how people understand mindfulness. Um, but if you think of it that way, it's like, well, you know, then your pet, like your your dog, they, you know, you might say that they're aware in that they're in the present moment. That's also true. But are they being mindful? Um, is there another process happening behind that? And I think that's where the meditation aspect of um we're actually developing a practice that cultivates more than just awareness. Um, And I think it's difficult to say what that more is until you're actually practicing. Um, So that's that's one thing that I I like to say about mindfulness and about meditation in general, and particularly about mindfulness based stress reduction. So when we look at mindfulness based stress reduction, um, most of the secular research that has been done that shows neurological changes in the brain, they've used MBSR. As a methodology for that work. So, if you look at the scientific papers across the board, MBSR is pretty much the intervention that's getting used to get those results. And what I think is important about that is that MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction, uh, we have a 45 minute per day practice component. And so that means that the neurological changes that, uh, you know, a lot of different Um, mindfulness, anybody that's doing mindfulness or promoting mindfulness is promoting all of these benefits, right? But the scientific benefits that we know of are only true in relationship to practice. And so I just think that's really important for people to sort of know and to be aware of, um, because I think there is this concept of like, oh, well, I'll meditate when I get stressed out. And this is for stress reduction. Mm-hmm. And again, it's, it's not about stress reduction. It's about awareness that can help you make choices which inform stress reduction. But it's it's really not about stress reduction. It's not about sleeping better. It's not about all of those are side effects of the practice, but they're not what mindfulness um, is, if that makes sense. And I think there's a misperception there.
0: Yeah, it does make sense. And what I'm hearing there is a, a couple of different things going on, maybe three. Uh, one is an intentionality component. And that's my favorite word in all of counseling is knowing why you do what you do. Uh, so so you have to know why you're using it. And, you, and, uh, and the second part, which is related to the first is you can't just learn it, you have to practice it. So mm-hmm. Um, as much as I love teaching emotional functioning, for example, and as, as often as I see heads pop when I teach this stuff, cause it's not in any curriculum. It's like, I'm teaching frontal lobe and uh, limbic system and all that stuff. People are like, wow, how, I, that makes so much sense. How did I not know that? Um, it, it itself knowledge of it doesn't change anything. You have to, you have to rehearse it in order to apply it. And then the, the third thing is that it's not symptom treatment it's it's problem resolution symptoms will resolve if you practice this well enough um because they simply uh don't surface as frequently because you're aware of them and you can tamp them down as soon as you start feeling them come up but then but then also when they come up because that's how life works life is full of problems when you're aware of when they come up you're so ingrained in the practice that you can know how to redirect attention elsewhere and become present and and maybe I'm guessing there's probably a, a, a non-attachment component here too, or you're you like you don't just like cling to things that, that stress you out. You learn to leave them where they be and deal with them in their due time or let them go if you can't do anything about it. Is am I getting close there?
1: Yeah, I think that's yeah, I think that is a lot of what happens. So with mindfulness, you know, we have the opportunity to, um, because again, one of the misconceptions is like, oh, I'll I'll move into this space where I just have no thoughts. And I think people almost think of it like zoning out somehow, right? Mm -hmm. And and really what happens is that it doesn't mean our thoughts go away, but that we're aware of where the thoughts go when they go away. And that's powerful. That's powerful, because most of us don't know how often the mind is drifting off. In the first place yeah, um, yeah. So one, of the, one of the first things we do in any meditation practice mindfulness or any other type is that we're building concentration so every time we notice the mind go off we come back goes off again comes back so we're kind of training the mind to stay in the present we actually know that gray matter in the area of concentration starts to increase when people practice meditation which is cool
0: you're building your and- brain
1: yeah, wow, you're actually. That's cool. Yeah, it's it's so cool. I know there's so many there's so much great research, um, and then the next thing that happens is, and and again, because you know so much of the, about the brain, you'll you'll understand this. That um, when we start to become aware of where the mind is going when it drifts off, we might be starting to see, oh, here's like a habit or a pattern that I keep landing in, and as soon so that's a neural pathway. That neural pathway has power, right? Mm -hmm, And so mm -hmm. as soon as we know that, we actually get to make a choice, we can choose like, no, I'm not going to let my attention go there. And we can actually start to build new neural pathways in the brain that are more helpful. And this is where the symptom reduction comes from, that rather than getting stuck in these old pathways, that might be so familiar, uh, we actually start to choose new ways of thinking that create new pathways And tend to help with all the symptom reduction. And, I mean, one other thing that happens, you and I were talking about a little earlier, you know, the amygdala, which helps kick in our fight, flight, freeze. We know that meditators start to have a calmer amygdala. Hmm. It doesn't get activated as often. So it's very cool. And we know that now that that has a direct impact on um, heart health. And so for for many years, there was a lot of good research showing like we know that people can have improvements in cardiac health through meditation, but why? And the amygdala is that connection. It's like, well, your amygdala is not getting triggered as often. So it's, it's really cool. All the, all, all that we actually, I, I think about meditation a lot is almost like reverse engineering. I'm planning on writing a book about this reverse engineering, the human experience, because so, so much of what we do is what we were hardwired to do from a survival perspective and it makes a lot of sense when you're in danger this body is amazing we know how to respond but in this modern life that we're living um and with the the particular mind that we have that can predict into the future unlike any other species it can it can um take us to places that aren't useful so right. with mindfulness, we're really engaging the most evolved part of our brain and creating a lot more neural pathways with the other parts of the brain that are more reactive. And we're starting to be able to self-regulate uh, much more effectively, and to to notice the difference between a perceived threat versus an actual threat, so that our whole system doesn't get hijacked if it's only a perceived threat. Like, what is going to happen if I don't? Complete everything on my to-do list. That's a perceived threat. That's not a maybe an actual threat. Well, depending on, you know, you, again, then you look at the physicians right now who has have an amazing caseload of patients they can't support. Well, then that's an actual threat. It's mm-hmm. really impacting them. So, but just to say that there's a lot of um, times that we might be uh, activating this whole system when it doesn't need to be activated, and mindfulness helps. Give us more and more information of the mind and the body. We don't leave out the body. There's so many signals. The body experiences everything first. So it's really this, um, yeah, kind of utilizing everything that we have and then engaging uh, the prefrontal cortex, that self-regulatory part of the brain to help control all of that.
0: There's so much in there I want to explore. Uh, it's all very, very brilliant. Um, I'll just wait to read the book, and all the listening audience can do that too. No, just kidding. Um, <laughs> so uh, some some reflections. One is uh, the idea that the amygdala, which triggers your fight, flight, some, t- some call it fight, flight, or freeze response, um, then begets a limbic response, which is your emotions. Emotions are comprised of brain chemicals like... Cortisol and adrenaline and norepinephrine and epinephrine and so forth. And some of those are useful in a situation like, um, you know, saber tooth tiger wants to eat my face. Um, and that triggers the entire body response as well as the brain response to act. And what I'm hearing is with regard to cardiac health, um, you're not overloading your system to the point that you're constantly raising your heart rate over what could be artificial threats. And I don't want to say artificial, but perceived because it, it could be a, a real threat. If you don't get quote unquote, everything done, uh, there could be some harm that befalls you. Maybe a, you know, you get a demotion or job loss or you don't clean the house and your wife yells at you, hypothetically speaking, of course. Uh, but, um, if we can, if we can attenuate that somehow by, um, being aware, being self-aware, using the mindfulness practices to, um, evaluate real from perceived, but also, uh, a timeliness with regard to how much time do I have to deal with this threat, real or perceived, whether it's a saber toothed hybrid six feet away, who wants to chew my face off from, you know, when we were cavemen and cave ladies versus cleaning the house, which, all right, I checked my watch, I got an hour and a half. It seems overwhelming, but but really, it, I, I just take one step at a time and I get everything put in order before spouse comes home. Um, we can calm down some of the physiological responses and then keep ourselves uh, body healthy, uh, if I can invent a phrase. Um, But I'm also hearing that um, this is applicable to multiple interfaces i guess or interaction so i'm thinking of my i don't know why uh, just other than he's just a really good guy and he's really smart and i love what he does but uh austin byler a friend of mine who's been on the podcast a couple of times he he teaches baseball to youth and um he does a lot of emotion based um inter- interventions and strategies And I'm thinking, like, if you got a neural pathway, and what you're referring to there is a concept called neuroplasticity, where we can—the brain is 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 malleable; it can change. We don't have to just be imprisoned to our old patterns and habits. If I fall into a slump, can I use mindfulness-based stress reduction to get myself out of the slump and say, "Oh, I don't want to—I don't want to swing like that anymore," and I actually want to hit curveballs or something like that? Is it is it applicable to athletics? And have you done any work in that area?
1: So it is applicable to athletics. And um, so you're going to notice my very poor <laughs> awareness of Oh, dear. Here we general. go. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, Home I runs are in baseball, not football. <laughs> no, in Seattle, their football team um, actually had a mindfulness coach and they won the Super Bowl that year. And so actually, at that point, Microsoft got really interested in like, oh, there's something to that. Mm. And so we'd love to see how that actually applies to the business world as well. Um, and and for sports, one of the things that's really cool about it is oftentimes, um, like, say you're out and you're, I mean, so I am athletic. I just <laughs> don't pay attention to like... Uh, I, I did martial arts for many years so I can apply it to myself in uh, like being in a tournament or something and if right, I start right, right. to get in, into my in my head and start to psych myself out or especially once I do something wrong um then all of a sudden I'm missing everything else that like I get totally derailed from the moment and you can imagine how that would happen in like a baseball game or a football game right like you don't hit the ball and Absolutely. now you're in your head like what if I don't hit the next one or you miss a pass or Whatever, and so with mindfulness, what happens is it allows you not to let your mind follow that thought. You actually just notice, oh, that was just a thought, and then you're right back into in the moment. And so it really helps you um, stay acutely attuned to what's happening, rather than getting caught up in all the. Again, it's this part of our brain that can like predict into the future, remember into the past. Yeah. Um, which again, can be really helpful if we're using it skillfully, uh, but not necessarily helpful sometimes in the moment. So. Yeah. I would say that's, that's kind of how it gets applied to sports and there's a lot of work that's been done there.
0: What, what do you say to people who struggle with guilt over things that they missed? Cause it sounds like there's a thematic element here where somebody does something wrong, uh, whether they, uh, ground out to second base or drop a pass or miss a deadline or, uh, just don't give their all on a project and it doesn't, doesn't work out. Um, all the way up to, you know, intense family guilt. And I talk a lot about the shame guilt treadmill that families and and religions can put on us uh, where there's this, like, if you don't do this, then you won't be in our good graces. And there's a, there's a biological survival instinct to that too, because we don't want to get kicked out of our tribes and so (laughs) forth. Um, But when the target is moving and reconciliation is not allowed and forgiveness is not granted um, how, how do you get people out of that stuck in guilt-in-a-dead-moment-of-the-past type of mentality?
1: Yeah, so if, there's two concepts that I'll talk about with that. One comes really deeply rooted in Buddhist philosophy, um, which has a lot to do with the idea of causes and conditions. And I found this to be so valuable, like right right now in the pandemic, um, in the environmental, political situation, you can really see this playing out, these ideas of, um, well, and and how this relates to mindfulness is that a big part of what we do as we develop a mindfulness practice, and this is one of the really significant underpinnings of practice, is you start to become aware of the the impermanent, transient nature of things. Yes. And I think it's sometimes, and, and I think this has changed a lot here in the United States where we're a country that's been well developed, has had a lot of wealth, um, has had a lot of systems that tend to work really well. Um, and, and so when you live in an environment like that, you, there can be this misperception about reality that you have way more control over things than you actually do. If you really notice anything, anything in the world, it's impermanent and changing. It's not reliable um, which can be ungrounding. So remind me to come back to that if I, (laughs) if I forget. Um, but, but that's important because what we start to know, if, if you can really see the truth in that is that, oh, my mind states are not reliable. They're also impermanent and changing.
0: Ooh. Yeah.
1: Um, and that the things where I get stuck on while I think I might be this kind of person, If I really notice what's happening, that's not always true. That's not true in every situation. So we we start to notice like things aren't as solid as they seem. And I think that's really useful because when we think things are solid or fixed, um, then we can develop this whole relationship to them that maybe isn't always that useful because the conditions, the conditions will never be fixed. And I think so then enter coronavirus into the U.S., all of a sudden, all of those systems that seem so reliable, so dependable that people are attached to, um, they're not like that. It's like the causes and conditions created that. And some of those causes and conditions have created a lot of harm over time. And so you're seeing that come up in the political situation, which isn't just about right now. It's about hundreds of years of of what has established and created that same with the environment, right? We're experiencing like the fires, uh, over the last few years, especially in the Western part of the United States. And I know across the globe in different areas, it's like uh, this is all from prior causes and conditions. So, so that doesn't absolve us from responsibility, that it actually in some ways informs responsibility, like whatever decisions I make now, will generate, generationally impact others. So it's really critical that we know something about our intention, like you said, um, and how that informs what comes next. So I, so then there's this other whole concept about actions and intentions. If we know that conditionality is true, our actions and our intentions really matter. Um, and so it's, and what what I love about mindfulness, I think a lot of people, when they think about meditators, is like, oh, people are just like, off isolating themselves, not talking, trying to check out of reality, that is not at all what we're doing. It's like, no, I'm going to show up to my mind. And I'm going to show up to my body, even when it's hard to know how I can learn to be in relationship with that not check out of it, but actually learn to be in relationship with that, because I know it's impermanent, because I know it's changing. And then we have more and more ability to see things clearly, as they are, And the more clearly we can see things without filters, without judgments, without all those lenses we might have, then we actually can start to make skillful actions and choices. And those impact, again, conditionality in the future. But, I mean, I know this started with a question about guilt. It's like, on the one hand, if you think about all of the things that informed your personality, everything it took for you to be who you are today... You probably didn't have you had c- control over some of that and some of that you did not have control over. Right. So it's like um, and, and just like coronavirus, I think for so many people, like one of the things I've been hearing a lot is like, I, I just can't do everything. I'm not showing up the way that I used to be able to. I'm, I'm disappointed in myself. I'm frustrated. Mm-hmm. I can't seem to stay on top of things. And it's like, of course you can't. The right. whole game changed. The conditions are not the same. There's no way in these new conditions you could have the same expectations of yourself. But you could see where our fixed mindset kind of keeps us stuck there. So I think in in those ways, if we can start to see that things are malleable, because guilt seems to come from a place of at least, and you, can sh- you, you could probably shed more light on this, but when I think about the concept of guilt, it feels like something unfixable. And if you really believe in impermanence, and you can really see the truth of that, then nothing's unfixable. Fixable. We well, we might not be able to change actions in the past, and that's why actions are s- like having good moral actions. And you can see that at the base of every contemplative tradition. That concept of morality hugely important because that that is like sets the the bar. And then if we're taking you know the actions that we think are the most skillful in the moment, there's not that much room for guilt. It's like, well, I showed up, I responded, I tried to relate to that, I apologized, I took. I, when there was, you know, some intent that I, you know, some impact from an intent that I didn't mean. So. Right. Yeah. It doesn't absolve people, I guess, of their past actions, but it certainly gives us a way to um, acknowledge them and try to have more skillful actions moving forward. And just to recognize, like, we're also not in charge of all of it.
0: <laughs> correct. You correct. Know? Yeah. Sorry. It, that
1: was a long tangent. No, it was,
0: it was really good. And you brought up a couple of really good points there. Uh, one is, uh, you asked about guilt. So the, the, as I understand it from Carol Izzard's work, and uh, Carol Izzard is a guy who I've uh, referenced many, many times before, and he, um, he really made some groundbreaking uh, discoveries with regard to our adaptive function of emotional uh, purpose. And so what does that mean? Well, how do our emotions tell us how to adapt to the environment is really what it means. And so the the functions of shame and guilt, which are two of our 10 discrete emotions, as he, as he calls them, is uh, shame tells us that we fail to meet somebody else's expectations, meaning we cause pain. Uh, so we cause sadness in someone else, which is another one of our 10. And then guilt says, go fix it. And that's it. Uh, it's very, very neutral. And pop psychology has taken those and uh, applied different definitions. And they're not necessarily wrong. Um, but the idea is that if you have made the effort to repair whatever is uh, broken that you broke, you know you failed to meet somebody's standards. That's all you can do. And if they continue to put you on the the shame guilt treadmill by saying, "Well, sorry, that was that was a nice try, but not good enough," uh, then you get the opportunity to say, "I, I did what I could," uh, which is what I hear you saying. It's like it's, it's impermanent. I can't change it now. I got to let it go. And if the other person doesn't want to let it go, that's it's on them. It's not on me because I can't control that. Which is very important. Uh, component to finding peace I think in one 's life, and then the other couple of concepts there are the idea that and Sam Harris talks about this i don 't know if you know who sam Harris is, but oh, he, yeah <laughs> yeah he he talks about he 's got an app actually it 's called wake up or awake or something like that um it 's a mindfulness app, and he says uh if you, if you're if you 're doing the app and you 're not applying that uh, insight that awareness to life is, is pretty much worthless uh, so so we have to do something with our our level of of mindfulness we can't just like be mindful and and then go back to living life the way that we were that's that defeats the purpose um, and then Christian Conti who's a, a friend of mine's been on the show a couple of times He he talks about the impermanence he's also you know practices Buddhism and the idea that all things are temporary and that and and I wanted to tie you back to this because it's you said it can be un, very ungrounding, and I think that's, that's a really good point. It's when we bring that up, it's not to provoke anxiety and say that oh my gosh, like even my life is impermanent. Well, yes, it is. So then we get a little bit existential here, and we say now that you have boundaries or parameters on your life, it's like being granted a a, a whiteboard, you know, or a surface or or some some piece of thing to 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 sculpt. Make with this what I give you, uh, rather than having this uh, idea that we've got forever or the, the canvas is, is never ending. Um, you have to create within the the parameters and within the parameters of life, uh, life is temporary. So let's create as much as we can and also be mindful of the ripple effect that whatever we do is going to touch people from, from many generations, uh, from here on out in ways that we'll never probably see most of the time. And, and all that is about being mindful of, of one's actions in the moment. If I spastically yell at my children, um, that's not a mindful activity. It may be limbic. It may be a response to environment, my inability to be aware and control my own frustrations, but the impact upon them may totally be unintentional. And if I do that enough, maybe they end up being scared of me or they don't trust me or something like that. Um, and, and we go back to the shame and guilt. If I yell at my kids and they, they burst into tears, I'd better go make an apology if I want to be right with them and then have some credibility later on. Otherwise, I'm just going to be yell, you know, viewed as a, as a yelling, screaming, uh, tyrant, tyrannical dad. Um, so we want to do things with great intention. And typically, when we do things with great intention and, and good mindfulness, we end up making choices that do benefit more than they cause detriment. Uh, because often it's often said that if you, if you act out of emotion, that's when you do things you regret. So, um, that, that's just kind of my, my encapsulation of that. But I do want to invite you back to talk about the ungroundingness. Cause I know what I just said out of my mouth and give my opinion, but, but what does it mean to be, you know, to, to flirt with the, the potential floating in perpetuity? Like, like postmodernism says, you know, like, well, everything's a construct of a construct and nothing is real and you can just make it up as you go. And that, that, that seems pretty pretty dangerous to me um, if you're not grounded in anything. So how do people find their grounding, I guess, so that they could be mindful, they can be non-attached, they can acknowledge the impermanence of things, but yet still return to values, beliefs, whatever?
1: Yeah, so this is a good question. And um, I, I, I like subtleties, so it's a little bit of a subtlety. Um, sometimes in Buddhist philosophy, we talk about near and far enemies. Um you know, and I think that's a helpful way to look at things. Um, So, so I'll bring forward this word equanimity. um, And the idea of equanimity is finding some balance. And that feels like just the right thing. When I talk about impermanence, like that's, that's something that's true. And it's also true that I'm, I'm here, right? So I'm not divorcing myself from the human experience because Mm -hmm. Uh, also in Buddhist philosophy, there's this concept of no self. And people are like, well, what does that even mean? And I think it's more the way that it's presented. It's, it's really this idea of self in process. So that's the way I like to think of it. It's like this, this self that exists and it's changing along the way. So this quality of equanimity, I think, can be like a, a grounding and a balancing factor. So we both know that, That things are impermanent and changing and we're in relationship to how they are in the moment so i think um i think that's really important i i think well i'm just gonna pause be mindful for a moment there's so much here (laughs) so the near enemy of equanimity is indifference so this is not and i and i bring that up because you asked about being attached you know, so it's like, okay, well, if everything's impermanent and changing, why get attached to anything anyways? That's nihilism, That's nihilism,
0: not that's nihilism but, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. And that's not at all what this practice is about. Um, and I think for me, I had to really do my old, own soul searching about that. And, and I think what, what, what I came up with is if I knew everything was going to last forever, it wouldn't be precious in the way that mm. it is. Good point now. And that really helped me. It was like, Oh, kind of like what you were saying about your life. Like, yeah. So it's impermanent, it's changing. So rather than disengaging or having that, you know, that near enemy of indifference, it's like, no, I want to engage. I want to care as much as I can. And I want to just accept Or if accepting is too much, even it just acknowledge, it's not always going to be like this, you know, and it might be better than this in certain ways. And it might be more challenging than this in some ways at different times. But, but I want to be in relationship to the equanimity is really about being in relationship to the truth of how things are. And that's powerful. You know, it's like, imagine if relationships started out that way. It's not like, well, this isn't the person I married. It's like, no, like of course it's not. Right. How could you even expect for that to be true sure? or, you know, if, as kids change over time or any anything in your life, you know, it's like so it's this ability again because we've developed enough emotional regulation to really truly and that's actually where intimacy comes from, like the the intimacy of being alive. Like I want to be fully in this experience because it's precious because it won't always be like this. You know, it's like, imagine if every parent did that as their kids were growing up, like this is how they are in this little three-year-old phase or this little five-year-old phase, and I'm going to take it in and I'm going to know that that changes because they're going to age.
0: Yeah. uh, It's, it's really simultaneously beautiful and brilliant. Um, And I, and I hope that people don't take the present moment for granted because you're never going to get it back you just you just won't you can't you can't recreate anything um same vacation same spot you know it's uh things things change uh new information is gleaned and to that point about receiving new information and, and i i talk in, about intimacy in terms of being able to uh be vulnerable vulnerable enough to receive new information which is something to which you alluded earlier about the idea of conflating who one is with what one believes. And uh, I think we have a terrible time with that right now in our, in our society where people have rooted themselves in their identities with their ideas and therefore they're resistant to new ideas because it somehow threatens their own personal identity, uh, which couldn't be further from the truth, but also identities can shift and change. And also whoever you are is, uh, infinite, in its capacity, you can be anybody you want to be at any point in time, and I guess the next question I have is how do you work with motivating people to change? Because uh, I think I think in in our field we have this presupp- presupposition that um, people who enter into counseling want to be there for some reason, and, and maybe it's our guy our job to guide them into uh, different reasons because uh, their stated reason is often not the the actual reason. But also, how do you reach people who um, clearly need help but don't necessarily want to seek it?
1: Yeah, so there's a couple things I want to say. First, I want to go back to that idea of we could be anybody that we want to be at any moment in time. And, and I just will say that there's a caveat to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it does depend on your conditions. You for, know, sure, a, for sure, for you sure. Know, and so I just yeah. want to acknowledge that too. That, But we do have the possibility... And this this is what's really empowering to me, especially when we look at people like Nelson Mandela, um, you know, this this ability to say, but I can choose to relate to it in a particular way. So even if we don't, we are not empowered in some way, we can we can at least choose how we want to relate to that experience uh, to the extent that we have that capacity. So I just, I wanted to name that. Mm-hmm. Um, but the second thing I'll say is I think you have a harder job than I I do. Like usually when people show up to a, a meditation class, they're ready to change. Like especially an eight week, you know, I, an MBSR program is a pretty robust uh, commitment and people know what they're getting into.
0: That's true. That's uh, true. Uh, yeah, for, nice. for, for for the clinicians listening, I, do, I I want to interrupt here for a second cuz yeah. that is a a great advantage that's been kicked around in our circles for for a while now is the idea of like do we ask people to sign some sort of contract that commits them to treatment for X amount of sessions and obviously the, the immediate pushback is well you're violating their autonomy and then you go well not if they're signing but then you go well what if it takes less time than that do you refund them their money <laughs> um, so I that I do want to acknowledge that that's that's a I think that's a a really cool idea, and we see it in group settings sometimes, where they sign on for you know ten, 10 groups or whatever, eight groups or six groups or something. Uh, it would be really neat to be able to set very clear goals and and move psychotherapy away from this kind of uh amorphous uh, drifting through treatment in perpetuity until we find whatever goal you're seeking but by the way we're going to keep coming up with problems along the way <laughs> uh mindset I, I don't think that does anybody any service so uh i get that um sorry le- thanks for letting me jump in there
1: well no, that's good yeah and, and and again i guess we talked about this a little bit before the podcast but also just to name that you know, we don't look at uh, at least MBSR that's not considered like um, counseling. You know, sometimes people think, right. oh, is this like a therapeutic intervention? We we look at it as a public health intervention. Um, and so, and and not to say that I haven't taught <laughs> to groups, you know, like I work at companies all the time because I have an MBA and I love to bring mindfulness into the business world. And so some, for sure there's going to be skeptics and, and folks like that. Uh, but what's really cool to me about mindfulness um, is that if people do the practice, I don't really have to tell them anything. I mean, my job, I see, I think that because I'm a practitioner and this is a key component, anybody that's teaching mindfulness should have their own well-developed practice if they're encouraging other people to do it. So I feel like I can say something about my own experience of understanding what can be formed and developed from practice at my own understanding of uh recognizing the places the mind can get stuck and a lot of times you know um people will talk about buddha as the great the first great psych- psychologist i mean he really did figure out habits of the mind that that do get played out pretty often i mean that's been really fascinating as a teacher i can pretty quickly predict patterns and habits that people have based on what they're reporting mm-hmm. um but the biggest part of, of mindfulness practice is that people are, again, cultivating this quality of awareness. And so we usually don't ask people to change anything. As soon as people become aware of that for themselves, it tends to change on its own. Uh-huh. So it's really powerful. I mean, it's, it's really cool because um, and, and, in, in a, and in a way, if we gave people like a goal, a place to get to, it would interfere with a process because all of a sudden you're striving and mindfulness is not right. about changing anything. It's not about making things different. Again, it's about developing a way to be in relationship to how things are in the moment, no matter what that is.:
0: Do you talk about but, the concept okay. sorry, do you talk about the concept of self, like capital S, self, and like alignment?
1: Uh, so in the context of MBSR, no, it's completely secular, and I, I wouldn't bring in the concept of self. Um, but I think people become aware of that on their own, like, oh, well I, you know, I just assumed I was someone who had chronic pain and that's how it was always going to be. I didn't realize my relationship to that pain could change. Or I, Mm. I just always thought of myself as an anxious person or a depressed person. They start to realize, well, like that's not necessarily true. I'm anxious sometimes and I'm depressed sometimes, or I'm someone with cancer. And it's like, well, cancer is a process happening in your body, but it's not who you are. Right. and so I think people start to um, stop being so identified with things that are again transient and permanent changing a, a process uh, rather than a fixed self
0: I, I love that you brought up public health because I wanted to talk about that for for a little bit and how you're seeing um, mindfulness based stress reduction as a public health intervention uh, possibility um, but the first But before we get there, because I want to hover on this a little bit longer, I remember something that really stuck with me that you said a couple of years back about um, people who have had traumatic experiences and are maybe not in, you know, maybe not pushed through the trauma yet. They're not good candidates for mindfulness practices because it can, it can basically unzip them without being able to zip them back up. Um, Do you talk a little bit about that? Because I I don't want.
1: I'm glad you brought that up. something we just touched on made me think of that too. Yeah. So, so one important thing for people to know is that um, mindfulness as an intervention might not be appropriate at a particular time or maybe not at all um, for certain individuals. So because mindfulness is an awareness practice, it will make people more aware of things. Uh So like if we have someone with significant depression or maybe, you know, thoughts of suicide, it is not recommended that they do mindfulness. It can make it worse because, again, the idea with the practice is not that we make any mind state go away, uh, but that we stay with it. Uh, you know, so if somebody's really depressed and they're just paying more attention to that, that's not going to be helpful. Mm. And so um, now, mindfulness can definitely have an impact on significant reoccur- reoccurring depression. We there's really good data showing it's on par or better than antidepressant medication. Mm. Um, So that's great. It's a good option, but only for people who have stabilized depression or are working with a therapist. So it's just really important that folks know that. And then also post-traumatic stress disorder. So mindfulness is a mind body intervention. And so sometimes as people start to move through the body and really pay attention to it, if there's been trauma Um, in the body, it can it can create flashbacks. And Uh, so a lot of what we talk about in the field, there's there's a lot of work. There's a a person named David Trelevin who's written a lot of really good trauma informed um, mindfulness. But so there's a lot of ways to modify the practices to make them more accessible to those populations. And one big one big thing is dosage. So if somebody's had you know post traumatic stress disorders start with a grounding practice in a small amount of time so that people actually can build up. So I've worked with uh, groups of significant trauma and seen a lot of great progress, but in a, an appropriately modified program. Um, and there's a great paper that one of my colleagues, Zita Falejo wrote uh, with, with some other colleagues where they were at a women's addiction rehabilitation center and they had to modify things a lot for where the participants were like a lot more physical movement, less uh, sitting. So there's a lot of um, trauma informed ways to deliver mindfulness, but really important that folks know. Uh, I always talk about it on a scale of one to 10. We want to be in, in a, like get up to the seven range. So we're challenging ourselves. but if we're moving in that seven to 10 of feeling really overwhelmed or like it's too much, It's not skillful to push yourself through that. We Mm. know that. So it's just like just open your eyes, go for a walk, do something else. uh, But don't push yourself through an overwhelmed zone. So thank you for asking about that. It's really important.
0: Yeah, is is there a screening tool by which you? uh, Because you can't possibly account for everybody in a company of you know thirty or forty where you're the the hired person to come in and you know work with these people. So how, how do you how do you filter out the the potential for Harm.
1: I screen every every single person. You so,
0: okay.
1: uh, depending on the company and how many people we're working with, I might just ask two questions: one, have you like have you experienced significant depression in the last three months? And two, do you have a post-traumatic stress disorder? And if people do, I call them and I talk to them about their options so that they know and, and that they know they have a they can talk to me and that we can modify or maybe it's not the right time for them to take the class. So I, I always screen, no matter how many people,
0: you know, thinking about the, the pop psychology and the, and the, I guess the, the social media interpretations of what mental health care looks like. Do people know what you're asking when you ask severe depression and post traumatic stress disorder? Like, are they like, I've never been diagnosed with it, but I had a really screwed up childhood. You know, like is how do we, how do we gauge that? Or is that part of the phone call interview?
1: So I would say, um, like, of course, even if people know that they have that, they might not answer that way. And this is the other really key component. And, you know, I can talk about this other platform that I'm about to launch.
0: You'd better. Uh, this, this is this other- your promotion right now.
1: <laughs> yeah. Well, there's this other key component that, the, like, at you as a counselor, people know that you went through a certain process, that you went through a certain amount of, you know, supervision, they, they know that you're credentialed, right? There's a certain amount, it doesn't mean every counselor's good, but at least they went through some training. With mindfulness interventions, it's not necessarily like that. But like, for me, if I'm sitting in a classroom with people, and people are reporting very specific things, I can pick out trauma now, because I know Mm -hmm. something about like, okay, that is not a normal report. And I'm going to talk to that person offline. So and so This is one of the things I've really um, been very intentional about in the work that I provide. There's a lot of mindfulness interventions that are available. And I think they all have, well, I wouldn't say all, but I think a lot of the, a lot of what's out there is good, you know, and could be useful in the right context. I personally will never do like drop-in sessions at companies or or anything like that uh, because I can't. Uh, one, I don't think there's that much value. People really learn certain things over a period of time and need consistent practice. But two, you can't really appropriately monitor what's happening with people. So like, I I have a scaled version of this that we're just launching in companies. And there's still a group component, like I'm not going to have groups where I can't tell what's happening with the participants enough to reach out to them if they, you know, if, if they didn't answer the screen, screening questions correctly, but I can tell they're struggling with practice. Right. So wow. I, I really believe that um, it's valuable to have a teacher and a well-trained teacher because they can recognize some of these things. And then we have a platform we're going to launch called the Mindfulness Standard. And it will be, a it's like available throughout the planet since MBS, MBSR exists uh, throughout the planet. And there's actually an organization called the international integrity network. And they, um, they basically are an organization that works with really good teacher training programs where they adhere to standards of practice. And we will only list teachers that have, uh, you know, have those standards of practice. And the reason I wanted to create this platform is it's really hard to find a mindfulness teacher Or a mindfulness program, if you don't know anything about it, or you don't even know what, like, you asked me the question, like, what, who shouldn't take this class? Or when could mindfulness do harm? And it's like, most people don't even know that that's a possibility. So
0: Platform
1: we hope will help people, people and organizations, um, to be better informed in who they bring in and, and how those people work with uh, the folks that are taking mindfulness programs.
0: So that's one endeavor is you're going to be self credentialing the entire professional community. That's pretty awesome. Uh, you mentioned another one, though. You said you're launching two. What What's the other thing?
1: Yeah. So, well, just a caveat on that one. We're not actually credentialing them, but we'll work with the organization that is basically allowing in the teachers. But it's a referral
0: hub, right? Of of trustworthy (laughs) professionals. Yeah. That's awesome.
1: And then the second one is um, I've worked with a lot of really large companies. I've been very lucky to be able to do that. Um, And one of the things they've asked over and over is like, can you scale this? Cause typically I'll teach, you know, an intervention within the company and I can do them virtually and there's lots of ways to do it. But, um, you know, time is always an issue when we're looking at companies Absolutely. and yet time is yeah. an important part of mindfulness. So uh, we are launching um, a platform that can be scaled in large companies. We're just starting our pilot in February with a, a large company uh, here in town, a startup, which is super cool. And it's it's basically a scaled version of, of learning mindfulness across the organization and still having interaction with a teacher. So it should be really exciting. That's
0: super cool. What are the numbers that we're talking about with regard to like, what's a standard group that you teach versus what's a large company look like?
1: Yeah. So a standard group that I teach, I usually won't allow more than 40 people in a class because that's about the amount where, again, I can kind of check in with people. So the company we're working with has about 800 employees.
0: That is um, not insignificant. Yeah. Good. Yeah,
1: it is. And we'll still have small groups, um, you know, uh, hopefully around 40 people. Um, but we'll have many of them and, uh, in shorter sessions.
0: How cool. And then
1: they have videos that they'll be watching to kind of um, learn the didactic information I would normally teach in class before the class. So it's a flipped classroom model.
0: That's a that's a really cool concept, and it's it's actually really encouraging that companies are sort of waking up to the idea that personal wellness matters, and it's not just a talking point on a flyer. Um, I mean, I'd I'd like to get to the point where EAP is something that's not just run through HR with some hired company that's done virtually through text therapy or something like that, just to save a buck, but actual investment into the human capital the human resources and i hate that term but but it's, it is what it is um that make a company move uh, such that we're actually pushing society and humanity forward not just merely attending to it because it feeds the bottom line or it's good public optics or whatever but actually being socially conscious of the people who you know turn turn the wheels so that's that's encouraging that somebody's willing to make that investment and, and basically do an experiment. Cause you know, I don't know if it's been done before elsewhere, but it seems like it's pretty novel. Um, is yeah. it
1: is, it's a brand new intervention. So it's been, uh, this company has been really, I mean, they're startups, so it's cool. They know something about being in the, those shoes. Right. Um, but, but we actually have a, a large, uh, health insurance company too, that we're going to start a internal pilot with as well. So it's, it is, I mean, I definitely think there's just enough, it's an evidence-based intervention. There's enough good research. And luckily I've been able to work with, um, I mean, the companies that I work with are companies that really care about everything that you're talking about. So it's, it's, it, it is very encouraging. It's really special to do that work. And I don't know, we're excited to see, you know, how it turns out too at at that level.
0: I'll bet that's, that's super cool. Um, it's, um. You know, all you got to do is prove the concept and then, uh, other people go, Hmm, maybe I want some of that too. Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's neat.
1: So we're <laughs>
0: that's great. Uh, there's so much more we could cover, but I want to, you know, I want to be mindful of the time and, uh, on honor yours and, um, I, we should probably wrap up, but- I want, to, I want people to know how they can get in touch with you. You do have a website. You do have your own company. You, you uh, work with a handful of other people who are teachers. Um, talk about that, please, and how people can get a hold of you. I don't know if you're on the socials or not.
1: So I'm not on social media. <laughs> My you're healthier for like, it. We do a lot more if you are more social, um, but I found it doesn't serve me that well. So, yeah, you can best way to get a hold of me is my website, www.equilibrium MBSR, mindfulness based stress reduction acronym.com. Um, and then, yeah, there's contact information on there and class information. And uh, yeah, I think that's the best way for now.
0: How much of this, uh, just because I'm curious, has to be done in person in this uh, times like these? Uh, Versus can be done virtually.
1: You know, I have to say, I've been teaching virtually long before the pandemic, and it's surprisingly almost exactly the same Hmm. as being in a room with people. So I've had just great. I mean, I actually did a program for a really large company um, before the pandemic and then during. And somebody retook the class and said, I was really surprised that this wasn't very different. You know, it's, there's something about, you know, using the breakout rooms and connecting as a community and, um, sharing, you know, this, this journey of life, uh, that, that whether we're online or we're in the room, it's, it's, uh, the same.
0: That's super cool. So if you're listening in Cambodia or South Africa or India or the UK or Canada, or even just somewhere domestically in the United States, uh, contact Colleen equilibrium dash mbsr.com. If you want to hire her, uh, or anyone of her ilk, what's I'm trying to conclude podcasts these days with uh, something that you really want the audience to take away some, some exhortation or some encouragement or something inspiring or uplifting. What would, what would you leave people with?
1: Yeah, I think, um, just knowing that we all have this common, even though everybody's life is different and the way the pandemic is impacting everybody is really different. Um, I would just really encourage everybody to hold some self-compassion for themselves in the midst of this. Uh, There's so much here, and uh, people have been through a lot, and I just, I really hope we can give ourselves grace and compassion in the moments that we're struggling, um, just to acknowledge this uh, really unique period of time we're living in.
0: I appreciate that. You know what we didn't cover, though? is the uh, public health aspect of mindfulness. Um, you want to touch on that real quick before we depart?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think we touched on it a little bit, this idea of it being more of it's its not therapy. It's more of an intervention, hmm. um, you know, and so, and it's an intervention that can be done with 30 people at a time. You know, it's like if you think about the numbers of people going to doctor, not no, this does not replace medicine It seems... complementary to medicine and mental health. Um, But the numbers of people that we can impact that have significant positive health health outcomes at one time, it's, it's a great public health intervention. We see that people have less physical health issues. They have less mental health issues. It's eight weeks long, but the, there's really good data showing five years after they did longitudinal studies five years after the program, 90% of the people are still practicing so, still probably having a lot of those benefits. Um, so, I think when we look at the numbers of people that can be helped with an intervention in a significant way that would um, have less impact on the health systems, uh, it's a huge win. And, and some countries have actually done this. Some health countries have just put MBSR in as a part of like their you know public health plans. And so, uh, it's you know the U.S. is very complex, and I think we've really struggle to figure out how to do that here. But it's definitely been adopted across the planet. And I would say look for the mindfulnessstandard.com. That will be a good way, you know, for folks to start to find teachers that might be qualified to teach. Again, there's teachers across the planet um, that are trained to teach MBSR and really well qualified. So that that should be coming soon in the next month or so.
0: That is exactly how I was hoping you would wrap this up so it didn't sound quite so clunky where I'm like, here's our conclusion and <laughs> then our coda uh, <laughs> and then our postscript. <laughs> but uh, thanks. Uh, Colleen Kamenish is her name, and you can find her at uh, equilibrium-mbsr.com. Thanks for your time. Really appreciate it. And um, I, I think this is, this is one of my favorite podcasts recently. Really, I've learned a ton, and it's a lot—a lot—that's going to be applicable to uh, not only my, my life, but my interns and my students, and and I think our listening audience too. So, um, thanks again for listening. And if you're new to the show, please, please, please share this. We you know, I I try to say we don't, we don't like this locked up in our heads. Uh, that doesn't do anybody any good. We want to share it around because that's just what makes earth better. So, uh, share this, uh, subscribe, do whatever you have to do. And then, um, and then, uh, as we always say, on behalf of the Naga Notes family and the Zephyr Wellness family, we wish you all great mental wellness. Thanks. Bye-bye.